0: Well, good morning, and please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73, or the psalm in its entirety is printed in your bulletins. And let me pray for our time this morning. Lord, we do give you thanks for this great weather and uh, the opportunity for us to gather together as your people and worship. And so I do pray that you would protect uh, our time together, protect this worship uh, environment that, uh, that would be free of distractions, whether outside distractions or even distractions of our own hearts. Pray that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, and that you would strengthen us to walk in a manner worthy of the name of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So our normal practice for these outdoor services are to preach our sermons in two parts, each one roughly 10 minutes, or maybe a little bit longer than 10 minutes. And so what we're going to begin with this morning is just the first 15 verses of Psalm 73. So verse 1, "'Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped.' For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this is a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph was one of King David's musicians in the temple. And we would categorize this as a wisdom song. The psalm allows us to gain a heart of wisdom, especially as we think about the ultimate destiny of those who are faithful and fear the Lord and those who do not. And this psalm by Asaph was written roughly 3,000 years ago. But the beauty of Scripture, it's timeless. This expresses the struggles and doubts that every believer faces when life seems unfair. And Asaph himself, this is a bit of a crisis of faith. And so, What we'll notice throughout this psalm is that Asaph mentions the heart six times. And it presses this question. How is our heart towards the Lord when life seems unfair? So Asaph begins this psalm, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, this is a true biblical theological statement. But the psalm doesn't end here there's still struggle involved. There's, and part of this is there can be a gap between our heads, what we know to be true, and our hearts of what we experience in life. And so for Asaph, this truth that God is good to the pure in heart was tested. In verse 2, we see this. It says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. This is language of struggle. And what caused Asaph to struggle in his his trust that God is good to the pure in heart? He names it in verse 3, envy. He says in verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what is envy? It's named as one of the seven deadly sins, and it's a destructive sin of the heart, oftentimes hidden but yet toxic to the community around us because it will inevitably leak out. Envy is a desire for what we do not have. It's FOMO. It's fear of missing out. It's a discontented heart. And I'll quote two uh, theologians slash pastors here. The first one would be Tim Keller in his book, The Songs of Jesus. He says this, To envy is to want someone else's life. It's to feel not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do, and that God hasn't been fair. This is spiritual self-pity, which forgets your sin and what you truly deserve from God, and drains all the joy out of life. Second quote would be from Jerry Bridges in his book, Uh, Respectable Sins, though the subtitle to that book is very important, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. This is what he says about envy. He says, Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Sometimes we want that same advantage. Sometimes we just resent the other person for having something that we don't. And then Jerry Bridges goes on in his book to offer some insight into the temptation towards envy he says usually there's two conditions that cause us to envy one is we tend to envy those with whom we're most clo- whom we most closely identify with, and the second one is we tend to envy in the areas of life that we value the most. So for me, I'm not going to envy the world champion of like curling or cornhole because I just don't care about those sports. Nor am I going to envy like sophisticated chefs on TV, because outside of making pancakes, I just cooking is not my passion. Right? So again, it's this, we tend to envy those that we're closely associated with and the things that we value. So for me, where I will be tempted to envy is another pastor who seems to have stronger gifts and a more effective ministry. Right? And that's true of all of our lives, of the areas that, we, uh, that we, we truly delight in. So how does this envy play out in Asaph's life and his heart? Well, we see in verse 4 through 12, he looks around the world and he sees that those who are wicked, meaning those who are hostile to God, they seem to be doing great, having a great life while he is struggling. And it just doesn't seem fair. The stuff that Asaph envies is the same stuff that we envy. Though we do have to do a bit of translation work because um, the slang of the Hebrew in Psalm 73 is a little different from our slang. For instance, and I'll use some generic names. I'll just use Jack and Jill. For instance, we typically don't hear anyone say, according to verse 4, oh, Jill, she just never has any pangs and her body is so fat and sleek. Right? That's not what we hear. But we translate as pangs would be struggles, fat and sleek would mean healthy and strong. In other words, Jill just never has any troubles and always looks good, and that's not fair. Or the next one would be according to verse seven, we'll never say something like, hey Jack, you know what your problem is? Your eyes swell out through fatness, right? That's not gonna be our statement, but rather the NIV would translate it this way. From their callous hearts comes iniquity, The evil conceits of their minds know no limit. So Jack is just a prosperous, cold-hearted schemer, and that's not fair. So then if we were to take verses 4 through 12, Asaph's looking around, he sees everybody seems to be living the good life. They seem to have no struggles until death. They're healthy and strong. They have no burdens. They're prideful and violent. They even mock God, and we see this from verses 11 uh, when, when they say, How can God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? They're mocking God. And if that's not bad enough, according to verse 10, they're also popular. In verse 12, Asaph sums it up this way. He says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. In other words, they've got it made. And it's just not fair. So how does this sin of envy play out in our own own hearts and lives? Again, when life doesn't seem fair, and we think we deserve better, and oftentimes that means better than others, this can take on a lot of forms, especially in our human experience. We can really struggle to be content. We want better health better looks, better personalities, better clothes, better cars, better homes and gardens. See what I did there? Um, We want better jobs. We want better recognition. We want better retirement. We want better friends. And the list goes on and on. And it's a hard, it's especially hard when we're struggling and we see those who seem to disregard God doing so much better than we are. So why is envy so destructive? Why is it so toxic to our soul and our community? It's because the sin of envy affects the heart both vertically and horizontally. So vertically, when life seems unfair... We're tempted to doubt God and be suspicious. God, do you care? Are you in control? Are you there? Can I trust you? So vertically, we can struggle in our relationship with God, but then horizontally, we struggle as well because envy leads to resentment of others. We want what they have, and we resent them for having it. Now, I'll share an illustration that, uh, along these lines. And so um, some of you may remember this if you have a good, really good memory. I preached on Psalm 73 15 years ago here, but I've reworked it quite a bit. But the same illustration, I think, still applies. So it was 2004, just finishing Covenant Seminary, got hired by Grace. 2004, Tiffany and I take our trip uh, to uh, Lawrence to look for a house. So we get here all day saturday we go house hunting but the very first house we saw we loved but then we thought okay it's probably foolish to lay a contract down right now we got to look at the rest of these houses so we did all day long but at the end of the day we're like nope that first one that's the house thought about laying a contract down there but we thought no let's let's take some extra time to pray about it that's the godly thing to do right so we prayed about it slept on it woke up the next morning excited lay a contract on the house, Uh, go to our re-alert, he says, uh, house is gone. A couple from California flew in last night. Within within two hours, they put a contract on that house. I'll tell you, right then, two things happened. One, I hated everyone from California. (laughs) The second thing is I became very discouraged with God. And just recounting this, we thought, wait, so we were crunching, crunching the numbers to make sure we were good financial stewards, right? And we were looking for a house that had a great layout for Christian hospitality, right? And we were, we were praying and praying about this. Whereas um, while we're doing all that, the wicked, to use Asaph's language, come and literally rip the carpet out from underneath us, Right? So, on the way back home to St. Louis, we did not find a house in that time, and so that four hour drive back was miserable and I was stewing and Finally, I looked at tiffany i 'm like why am i why am I so upset it 's just a house But for me, I realized then it wasn 't just a house, it was a question. God, why did you allow this to happen can we can we trust you with this yeah, I realized it was a bit of a uh i was being a bit of a baby, but it was real. And if I can use this language, we'll get to later on, verse 21. It's because my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart. Again, envy is dangerous because vertically it causes us to doubt God's goodness. Is he there for me? Will he provide? Am I going to get what I deserve? Dangerous question. But also envy horizontally. Can cause us to resent others. But where envy can lead us to is a dangerous question. And it's, is it worth it to follow the Lord when I don't seem to be living the good life and others are who disregard God? Is it even worth it? And this is where Asaph lands in verse 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So Asaph is wrestling with the question, is it worth it to follow the Lord wholeheartedly while I'm struggling? And those who disregard God seem to prosper. Earlier in verse 5, he mentioned that the wicked are not stricken, meaning afflicted. Whereas now in verse 14, he's saying he is stricken and rebuked every morning. And he goes on, say in verse 15, that he keeps his mouth shut so that he doesn't undermine other people's faith, but but he's struggling. And can you relate to this struggle? Wondering if following God wholeheartedly is worth it. I believe sometimes we put conditions on God that we may not even be aware of. Yes, God, I will follow you wholeheartedly as long as... Me and the ones that I love, that we don't suffer too much. As long as I can remain, can uh, retain some control of my life, not all of it, just 51%. As long as it makes me happy and I feel blessed according to my standards. This is as long as Christianity. I'll follow you wholeheartedly as long as I feel blessed, I feel happy. But this version of Christianity, this um, as long as I feel happy and blessed, will always get tested relationally and socially, and that socially includes social media. We will always find people that seem to be prospering more. But we have to trust God is good to those who are pure in heart, in work. We may not prosper according to the ones who maybe play by play by the rules of the world, but we have to trust godly integrity. We have to entrust that God is good to those who are pure in heart. In our parenting, at times we can look around and wonder, why are my kids not prospering like others, especially those from households that disregard God? And we have to remind ourselves, and we have to remind our kids, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Envy can be so subtle, but so toxic. So at this time, I want to invite the musicians back up. And I want us to take a few seconds, and maybe our musicians can strum on the guitar a little bit, while we we reflect on this. Where in our hearts do we see the sins of envy rise up? And just to think about that, But then as we start singing together to change our focus on this, the answer for our envy is in the very good and faithful character of God that we will sing about. So let's reflect.
1: Excellent work What more can he say? shall not harm thee I only design My jost to consume and my gold to refine The soul that on Jesus had leaned for
2: Of our God And the cross leaves no question Of the measure Of His love Our chains are gone And our debt Is paid The cross Has overthrown The grave For Jesus' blood that sets us free means death to death and life for me. The innocent judge guilty of the guilty one walk free. Death would be his portion, and our portion, liberty. Our chains are gone, our dead is paid, the cross has overthrown the grave, for Jesus' blood that sets us free. Leads death to death and life for me.
0: I give my whole life.
2: I give my whole life to honor this love by the Lamb who was slain. I'm forgiven, the sinner's Savior. Slain, he is risen. I give my whole life to honor this love by the Lamb who was slain. I'm forgiven, the sinner saved. Are gone, and our dead is made. The cross has overthrown the, the grave, grave. For Jesus' blood that sets us free means death to death and life for me. And our chains are gone, our dead. Pay. the cross throw the grain for Jesus blood that sets us free means death to death and life for me means death to death and life for me you can be seated.
0: So now as we come to the turning point of this psalm, the question that Asaph was answering, is it worth it to follow the the, the Lord wholeheartedly when I seem to be struggling and others seem to be doing great and living the good life? That question is answered. And we see this in verses 16 through 28. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold... Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And again, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So we see in verses 16 and 17, Asaph is weary from the struggle. Until, it says, he goes into the sanctuary of God. And at this point, his life is transformed. And the whole psalm changes direction on this verse. It's in the temple that Asaph has what we'd call some aha moments. Think about the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returns and we're in glory. To be full of aha moments when we're, oh, now I see. This is some of what Asaph experiences in the temple. And we're not exactly sure. He doesn't say what happened in the the temple, whether it was a time of corporate worship, the reading of Scripture. Could be that Asaph was looking around at the sacrificial system and recognized the seriousness of sin and judgment. Could have been a time of personal reflection. We're not sure. But what we do know is Asaph has a paradigm shift. And so what I want to do is just lay out what I see as some aha moments for Asaph. Because he has become convinced now, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in hearts. But as I lay out these aha moments, I have one question that I want us to keep in our minds, and it's this. Why do we need this psalm? It's always a great question to ask the psalms when we're reading them. God has given them to all of us, to his people. Together, we need this. Why do we need this psalm? What truths of this psalm, what paradigm shifts need to be reinforced in our own lives from Psalm 73? And we'll look at this through Asaph's eyes. So, aha moment number one. And this is in verses 18 through 20. Is Asaph's perspective on the wicked with respect to their ultimate destiny. If you recall in verse two, who was stumbling? It was Asaph, who said my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. But now in verse 18, he writes, truly you set them, meaning the ungodly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. And verses 19 and 20 reinforces this, because in their hard-heartedness, Scriptures say they they will be destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. This is an expression of death and separation from God, what the Bible would refer to as hell. And note the contrast between the first half and the second half of this psalm, whereas in verse 12, Asaph says, "'Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, "'and they increase in riches.'" But now look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. So maybe it's good for us to pause here and just ask this question. So why does God allow those who are not devoted to him to prosper? Why, according to Matthew five forty-five, does God... Make his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Morally, it doesn't seem fair that God would be gracious to those who reject him. And this is a complicated question, but I just want to offer a piece of it from Romans 2, 4 and 5. That Paul says this, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's goodness is intended to give the unbeliever an opportunity to repent, to see God as the true giver of all good gifts. And in that, to turn, to trust Christ and Christ alone as their hope. But the reality is if they maintain a hard and impenitent heart, they are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Proverbs 23:17 says this, "Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. The truth is there's many around us who have not embraced Christ as their Lord, and they seem to be having a great life. These are our family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, you name it. But the scriptures are clear. We are not to envy them. We are to pray for them. And we are to trust. Verse 1, God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. And if we need reinforcement from that, We can trust Jesus' words. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. From Jesus' perspective, ultimate prosperity is seeing God. So our first paradigm shift for Asaph was his perspective on the wicked. Second paradigm shift, or his aha moment number two, would be his perspective on his own heart before the Lord. One of the reasons that I love this psalm is its brutal honesty. Asaph admits when his soul was embittered, his heart was pricked. And God desires that we come to him honestly. And yet, we also see in verse 22 that God desires that we admit when we charge him unjustly and are brutish. And ignorant is the language that Asaph used. When we're brutish and ignorant and like a beast towards God. So how do we fight against envy when we see it in our own hearts? If I can put it this way, envy is like a virus that spreads in our hearts. But parts of the vaccine for this virus is humility and Gratitude. Envy says with clenched fists, but it's not fair, I deserve more, I deserve better. But humility and gratitude says this with open hands, thank you Lord for the good gifts in my life. It's a different posture. And here's where we need to pause and think about God's amazing grace. So we do not serve a God of karma, where we get what we deserve. But rather, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, what we receive is grace. We don't receive judgment. And we serve a God who allows us to humble ourselves when we've been brutish and ignorant before him. And we serve a God who can deal with us in our sin and our grumbling and turn our hearts towards gratitude. In her book, Living Into Community, Cultivating Practices That Sustain Us, by Christine Pohl, and last name is P-O-H-L, she writes about gratitude and envy, and I like what she writes here. She says, we can be envious of another person's relationships, spiritual giftedness, blessings, reputation, possessions, successes, just about anything. She goes on, at the core of envy is an absence of gratitude for the gifts that we've been given. And the truth is, if we're in Christ, we have the greatest gift and all the blessings that flow from Christ. As one pastor put it, to believe in Jesus Christ means to become thankful. Christine Pohl in her book goes on to tell this story, I thought it was a great story, of a church worker who spent a couple of years working with refugees in Latin America and discovered how these refugee camps were set up when the refugees would begin to set up a camp, they, they established three committees. One was the Committee of Education they, to further educate their kids. The second one was the Committee of Construction to set up a sustainable camp. But the third one is interesting, the Committee of Joy, because they needed joy. We may not be refugees. But we need a community of joy, a committee of joy. And what is it for us? It is is the church. It's our people, it's our Bible studies, it's our life groups. We need to be reminded that with all that comes our way, there is joy, that God is good. We have gotta remind ourselves of these things, that all of our longings will be satisfied in God and God alone. And what are our practices? Of gratitude. How do we make room for it in our lives? Oftentimes it's just paying attention and, and being thankful for even the small stuff. And one simple application this could even be a homework assignment for lunch and dinner tonight is during the meal to offer a prayer of thanks and potentially even go around the table what are you thankful for? What are you grateful for? Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, writes this. Every mealtime fills Christians with gratitude for the living, present Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Christians, in their wholehearted joy in the good gifts of his physical life, acknowledge their Lord as the true giver of all good gifts, and beyond this, as the true gift, capital G, the true bread of life itself, and finally, as the one who is calling them to the banquet of the kingdom of God. So in a singular way, he goes on to say, the Daily Table Fellowship binds the Christian to their Lord and to one another. It's just a meal, right? Oh, no. It's a profound opportunity to give gratitude for Christ and all the blessings that flow from that. The blessings that we'll taste on this earth, but especially for the kingdom of God that awaits Aha moment number one was Asaph's perspective on the wicked. Aha moment number two, his perspective of his own heart. And aha moment number three for Asaph is his perspective on God's goodness. So what changed? It wasn't Asaph's circumstances. What changed is his understanding that divine goodness is not based on prosperity, but rather divine presence, that God is with him. And will always be with him. Apsaph understands that no matter what, this is true. He writes this in verse 23 and 24. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. As one commentator put it, we are grasped, guided, and glorified. God grasps us with his hand. Guides us through all the trials in life. And will bring us to glory safely. Asaph goes on in verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And listen to this. Think about earlier in the psalm, all that Asaph was looking around and seeing what is envious of. And here's what he says here But there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So as we come to the end of this psalm, recall verse 2, Asaph said, But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. But now in verse 28, we have this same expression, but as for me. But he says, It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And again, We can't be certain what Asaph saw and experienced in the temple, but here's what we know. That glorious day when we're back in the sanctuary, what we will be able to clearly see is the cross. It is through the cross that to use Asaph's language in in verse 28, it's through the cross that we have the ability to be near God. That for those that are in Christ, there is no condemnation and no separation from his love, Romans 8. And because of the cross, the Lord God is our refuge. That through the cross, we can cry out to God as Abba, Father, again, Romans 8. And Asaph finishes with, that I may tell of all your works. And that's our calling as well to speak of as we offer opportunity and to pray for the opportunity to speak of the glory of the cross that has transformed our lives. And when we're tempted to doubt, does God care? Is he holding out on me? Is he there? We look at the cross because it's at the cross that we see God perfectly demonstrated his love and his commitment for us which again should lead us to gratitude. So when we're tempted to raise our fist and say, I deserve more, I deserve better. Again, our posture is this, know the cross. I have everything, I have everything. My last thought, where I left you with the house hunt, was that I hated everyone from California and I was discouraged. But then the very next day, Tiffany gets on the internet. She sees a house that was tailor-made for our family. And one piece of the story I didn't share, our kids have been praying for a swing set in the backyard. That's a lot of pressure. But we find this house, and we go in the backyard. It's not a swing set, but rather a two-story playhouse with an AC unit in the window for those hot summer Lawrence days. Yeah, God was good, but I had to see it unfold. And that's the reality with envy. We can desire so much in the world, but the reality is God is asking, no, no, no. Just wait till it all unfolds. I'm good. I am good. I am faithful. And we get to taste that at times on this earth. But the truth of the matter is in the new heavens and new earth, we will have everything our heart longs for. There will be no more room for envy. And What a glorious day that will be. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word and the testimony of Psalm 73. I do pray that you would help us to see more clearly our own envy, the way it causes resentment and doubt. So help us instead to repent of that, to grow in our love of you, Lord, to see your goodness and faithfulness. and And to grow in our love of our neighbor that we would not envy, but rather we would pray. Help us to have the proper expectations, the proper perspective, to not envy the world around us. Help us to grow in our deep understanding, grow deeper in the reality that that you are good to the pure in heart. And thank you that because of the cross, we can draw near to you. You are our Father. Thank you that because of the cross, you are our refuge. Thank you that we are grasped by your right hand. We are guided. We will be glorified. And help us to tell of all your glorious works. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
2: Yes, please stand and let's sing it. Perfect is the grace that sealed us. Strong the hands stretched forth to shield us. All must be well. And though we pass through tribulation, all will be well. Ours is such a full salvation. Is well and happy still in God, confiding, fruitful if in Christ abiding, step fast through the Spirit's guiding. All must be well. We expect a bright tomorrow, all will be well. If faith can't see days of sorrow all is well in living or in dying, all must be well.
0: If you desire prayer with elders right after this service, to my right, your left, we'll have some elders gathered. We'd love to have uh, you come and pray with them for any needs that you might have.
1: ha ah.